So uh, today we are going to talk through uh, week three and our second principle in this series that we have titled Feel Better, uh, talking about emotional health. We started talking about how Jesus uh, is emotionally healthy, that we so often have a propensity as followers of Jesus, in the West at least, uh, to distance ourselves from his humanity. And uh, we went through a number of different texts, recognizing that Jesus is aware of what's happening and why. And that we're seeing Jesus have this posture of surrender we see in the garden where he's offering up uh, his desires and his feelings and his trust to the Father. And that if we are going to be mature followers of Jesus, integrated, whole people who are serious about the inward journey and God making us new, then we have to be serious about our emotional health. You cannot be a mature person and be emotionally unhealthy. You cannot be a mature follower of Jesus, a mature disciple, and be emotionally healthy. And so Lent, this season that we've just stepped into, the 40 days leading to Easter, this season that uh, you may have come from a tradition that practiced this or not, but we found it really helpful as a season where we just pay attention a bit more to our own internal journey as we journey along with Jesus these 40 days towards the cross. So today, uh, the passage that Joman just read, Genesis um, 20, is really the end of the story of what we're going to talk about uh, today. I'm going to look a bit at epigenetics, and then we're going to talk about um, the story of Abram and his kind of family line, and then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, my dysfunctional family, and uh, which should really get you super excited. Uh, and then hopefully invoke great tears in all of you as you realize how jacked up you all are. Sound like a fun way to spend a Sunday morning? <laughs> Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, as we open your word, as we reflect, as I offer just some humble thoughts that, that we as a community might grow in practicing the way of Jesus, again we pray that you give us open eyes and open hearts. Open eyes and open hearts and open ears, Lord, to what you want to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, my wife started uh, working on her, uh, her graduate degree. And uh, she took this class. It's on, in, in uh, global health. And she took this class that um, was fascinating because what it started to do was, was kind of open her mind up to something that if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard maybe people talk about. Anyone heard the phrase generational sin? Anyone ever heard that? Sounds kind of mystical. If you didn't come from maybe a more charismatic background, you have a whole, like, all the weird flags just went up. If you're brand new with us, that phrase, that just went on your, like, hit list of, like, okay, I may not be coming back. For some of us, that triggers something, oh, generational sin, as if I'm somehow responsible or something was passed down because dad or granddad or great-granddad did something that then caused something awful to happen. Feels a little strange, right? She's taking this class, and she's reading through... Uh, this study of basically how our, our genes are affected by external circumstances and environments. And the more and more we begin to read about this, the more, 
like confused we become because this sounds the, the, the amount of research and work that has gone in to the amount of studies that are being referenced here of seeing how these things are affected we, we start to realize this sounds a lot like the way the Bible talks about generational sin there are environmental issues that happen for instance there are ways in which uh, people who have been born into incredibly stress-induced environments, usually very low-income and at-risk neighborhoods, that all of a sudden, um, or not all of a sudden, that they're realizing that certain things happen in kids' biology in this environment where they uh, begin to actually, they see changes happen inside of their genes. Certain levels go up, certain levels go down. There's a whole lot of a lot of very technical languages. I wanted to read and quote this to you. I was trying to find ways to actually simplify some of this. But the, the, the gist is basically they're tracing like transgenerationally how impacts and things that have happened in particular neighborhoods with particular kids at a particular age affect their kids and their kids' kids. Realizing that like psychological stress alongside environmental conditions, so not just you went through a famine and that affected certain things in your genes that then affected your future kids because you didn't have or had, didn't have a lot of one thing or had too much of another, but actually seeing um, that like things like chronic stress began to manifest itself in things that they point to behavioral issues and how kids then process stress in the next generation. As we went through study at study and reading through the research that had been done, it was so, so very interesting to see how you have um, modern-day biologists, people talking about how uh, there are biological implications for the brokenness in our world and how that can begin to set something up like... Um, major behavioral problems that sometimes even skip generations. Things like alcoholism and where that actually starts from and comes from. External things that can happen that all of a sudden begin to shift your very biology. All of a sudden, modern day biologists start sounding like ancient rabbis. It was like you can imagine in these ancient texts that we read in the Bible where they are noticing in this oral history of stories being passed down going, oh man, like that family is full of like seriously like disruptive children. Is this just bad parenting pointed down? Wow, this family, there, there is these certain things around lying and womanizing, misogyny and sexism. They began to go, there's something on that. And they would use this language, right? This very old, ancient language. Like, there, there's like a curse upon that family. Which feels so, uh, it feels too far out. I think for me, when I read much of that, I, I realize that, that that feels like a, a very ancient, primal way of trying to make sense of something where there really is no connection. And yet, and yet, you have biologists going, yeah, yeah, that, that's happening all the time. Genesis 12, 1. This is one of the central stories in the scripture. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's households of the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God 
calls this man Abram to be a vehicle for God's saving love. And God makes Abraham a promise saying, I will bless you and all families on earth will be blessed. God says, I will take you and your infertile wife, as part of the story, at 75 years old, I'm going to stand by your side and bless everyone through you. This is not bad for a random guy being pulled out of nowhere. We don't know anything about him. And then in Genesis 12, 4, so Abraham, Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sariah, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. He goes. He's obedient. He doesn't have it all together. And then we read in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sariah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but will let you live. This is a very primal, like this is is a primal time. (laughs) Say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sariah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sariah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So when I took her to be my wife, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram tells Sarai to lie to Pharaoh, to put her neck on the line, so that he would be saved and make some coin. Abram. One of the fathers of the faith called out in obedience to be a blessing to the world is cunning, shrewd, lying, sexist man. Genesis 20, verse 1. This happens again, the exact same thing. Now Abram moved on from here into the region uh, and, of Nechava and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. The king of Gerar sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. It happens again. This guy does not have problems. The same exact thing, an ongoing habitual sin in Abraham's life. And it lives on then, as we see in a moment, in his son. Stay with me here. Genesis 26.1. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. So, for to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of them, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. 
He thought, the man of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Famine in the land, same king, same place. It says, stay in the land and I will bless you, right? Notice the same language. All nations on earth will be blessed. So the promise is passed down a generation and, when, and, uh, and as well as the sin, as well as the issues. Any of this sound familiar? Then we have Isaac growing up in Genesis 27. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you will give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau. He's got some, some, some sight issues. And he wants to give the blessing. He's not quite sure who he's looking at. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. This is a frail old man being taken advantage of. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. This lives on in the issues of his kids. Jacob is ripping him off. Jacob lying to his own dad. The first of many lies. The sin lives on and it gets worse even in the lives of Jacob's children. This is the account of Jacob's family line. You still with me? Everyone like reading about someone else's messed up family, right? This is why we watch like the Kardashians and things like that. Was that fair? That wasn't fair. Kim, I'm sorry if you're out there. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Jacob grows up. Children from different wives. He's the youngest. And he's no surprising as a tattletale. And I just, quick reference, Israel is another name for Jacob. So we see in verse 31, uh, they are about to murder him. They don't like him at all, his brothers. And they sell him into slavery and then spin a lie around it. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. So his father recognized it and said, it is surely is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt. I mean, you can see the duplicity here. We see a pattern emerging in Abraham, son of Isaac. The grandson Jacob, Joseph, and the rest. We see lying. Jacob lies all over the place, even to his dad's own face. He lied to his father's face. There's misogyny and sexual addiction. Abraham's sleeping with Sarah's servant. Jacob's like a full-on polygamist. There's favoritism in every generation. Sibling rivalry, getting kicked out of families, deception. Jacob's son sells Joseph into slavery. His sons sell their brother. Sins live on from one generation to the next, and they actually have a whole lot of patterns. Exodus 20, verse 1. Last passage. Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai, delivered from Egypt, and about to be handed down these Ten Commandments, which is essentially this marriage covenant. You've been saved by grace from Egypt. Here's how we're going to live together. And God spoke all these words. The first, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents in the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Don't freak out. God is not saying that your great-great-grandchildren, he's simply going to smite. What's being said here is generational sin is real. Many writers and rabbis have talked over the years how the bent is passed down. Sin has consequences that last a generation. Some of you are still dealing with just sin that's happened this generation of your parents' divorce, but... Like I'm going to share in a moment, my mom's difficulty in parenting stems so much from the fact that she grew up with a father who had never seen what healthy parenting looked like at all. And you can trace it back three generations of alcoholism and a deep, deep mother wound. And so we begin to ask questions about how these things get passed down and the ways that we respond and the choices we make to the cards that we have been dealt matter. But it's important to point out, and the reason why I quoted this scripture, is that on the scale of mercy and judgment, mercy wins every time. Yes, God is a God of justice. We don't want a God who's not just. Can I just put that out there? We always are like, how could God like punish sin that seems too harsh? He should have just grace abounding. And yet when we see things like the shooting in Parkland, we're very quick to go, God, send your wrath. Really quick to go, God, you better judge those that have oppressed and hurt those around us. And we so often can neglect that sin in our own hearts. But as you see here, the scale of mercy and judgment is tipped toward mercy. Showing love to a thousand generations. The writer's using this picture of, yeah, yeah, the next couple generations are going to feel this, but please know what God's mercy and grace. The scale is tipped towards his mercy. The idea of punishment isn't like a one-to-one thing. The idea is the odds are that your father's sin lives in you, and you have got to be awake to that reality. If you don't fully believe me, Romans 1 talks about God's wrath being something that God, look, allows the consequences of our decisions and the decisions of a generation that goes before us because God's a God of love, which means God has to be a God of freedom. And so God goes, yeah, I'm going to give you over. I lay before you the choice of life and death. And in Romans, it, it, we hear God talk about my, my wrath is simply, I, I'm not going to interfere with the consequences of, of what that brings. There are consequences. Our family of origin has a massive bearing on who we are today. A massive, massive bearing on who we are today. Abraham makes a lot of mistakes. He's also an outstanding man. He passes on sins and he passes on the promises that God has made. My point is that both bad and good things have happened to us and shaped us, and we all carry those bad and good things. In other words, we carry an inheritance, right? Some of us. We carry an inheritance, and then we carry sin. We see this pattern throughout scriptures and throughout our lives. I mentioned my, my mom. So my, uh, I've shared this story, I believe, before, but my, 
my brothers, um, as Nathan, my, uh, my uh, brother who's six years younger than me, it was his 21st birthday, and uh, we went out for a drink, we sat around the table just talking, and my brothers and I have always gotten along, well, as adults, we've always gotten along really well. And so it wasn't peculiar that we would go out, but we would usually go out, like, if we are going to watch a game or going to do something. We're just going to go out and talk was not something we did often. So we go out, Stephen and I, my other brother, just share how thankful we are for Nathan. And, and we start just talking about family. We're sitting in this old neighborhood bar that we've been around and in throughout the years. So nostalgia, you know, starts creeping up. Wow, you're 21. What's coming next? And the conversation quickly turned toward our mom and our dad and how we, do you realize how bad mom had it? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that recently. Like dad's dad lost his mom at 13 in a car accident. Do you remember the story that mom told about how she was, left in Grand Central Station when she felt like she couldn't keep going in college because of some things that had gone on. And remember her dad wouldn't go from Long Island to go pick her up and left her alone to fend for herself downtown to find a train back home. Do you remember that? Do you remember how mom used to say that dad, that her dad would never say I'm proud of you? Do you remember how her mom used to always speak this like death over her, like you're gonna be just like her mom who was this incredibly emotionally unstable Person. Do you remember dad saying that he never heard the words, I love you ever from his dad, like ever? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember how they used to always say, like, we want to be, do a good job making sure we always say we're proud of you? Because we didn't get that a lot. And we start recalling this story. And then this other story. And then this other story. And have you ever had a moment like that? And all of a sudden you're like tracing back your, 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 your history and you're going, how on earth are my three siblings so overly, if you've met me for just like five minutes or any of my brothers or sisters, you know we are just like way too touchy, way too nostalgic. Like, like a, a lot of I love yous when we should probably rein that in. Like I apparently love a lot of people. It's just, it just comes out. I, man, I love you. I think people are really taken like aback sometimes by it and feel super awkward. Like, cool, buddy. Do I have to reciprocate that? Because we've got coffee once. <laughs> we were commenting on like, what's wrong with us? And, and, and it, it just, it dawned on us in that moment in a sharper way than it ever had that our parents had broken generational sin. They'd broken it. We didn't have to endure so much of what they had to endure. Now, were my parents perfect? I hope I don't need to give that preface. Of course not. And in fact, what I loved about my mom, she's like me, she's an external processor. And so she would like midstream as she was like not being a great parent, identify she's not being a great parent, pivot. This is all within like 15 seconds. And be like, I'm so sorry, and I don't say I'm proud of you enough. And my mom didn't say I'm proud of you, and I want to change that, and I'm so sorry. All of a sudden, like... I'm the one crying, and I'm, like, comforting my mom. It's all, it's all right. You're a good mom. Like, maybe that was her, like, tact. It was, like, strategy. Like, I know. I know what to do. She's just brilliant. <laughs> but because I got to see that, it was incredible. My dad would ask for forgiveness. 
I don't know if any of your parents, if that was an anomaly for some of you, the idea that your dad would come to you and say, sorry, will you forgive me? I don't mean as an adult. I mean like when you were a kid. These things were things that didn't happen in their family. We knew probably more than we should have that we were special and loved and unique. The mother wound is that you matter. It's good that you're alive. That's the mother blessing. The mother wound is when obviously that's removed. And realizing that there were serious mother wounds on my mom's side and serious father wounds on my dad's side. When you begin to be able to name what's happened and come before you, My parents were both first-generation Christians. So for them, the process of naming it came with simply being a person who confesses and repents and acknowledges there's brokenness and that allowing God to reparent you. And so they, they were, without at times even knowing it, allowing God to reparent. My mom still has a hard time, still as a 50-something-year-old woman, has a hard time relating to God as father. Anyone else in the room have a hard time with that? Yeah, any male, like, language on God is difficult because of your experiences with dad. And so she would just talk about how the, the more and more I grew as a follower of Jesus, I had to take seriously, not general sin, I'm a sinner, like the specific ways that I am jacked up and develop spiritual practices and disciplines to counter them. This is what gives the alcoholic, if any of you are in... Um, AA or Al-Anon, you know the power that the alcoholic has over their possession is what? The ability to name it. Name it. This, I am, I, wherever I go, there I am. And because I can name it, and I know what's there, and I know what's in my blood, and I know what's in my genes, and I know the habits that have developed, and I know the way my mind has become wired I'm not going into a bar. I have practices of meeting together regularly with people that help invite God into spaces of reparenting and reimagining, reunderstanding who I am and the story of who I am. This is where the power lies, is when we begin to name it. So last week, our principle, principle one that we've been following along with is looking beneath the surface. We have to look beneath the surface. This week, it is breaking the power of the past. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Church, says this. In emotionally healthy communities, people understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. They have realized from Scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kind of person they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we have grown up in is the primary and except in very rare circumstances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. Pete is making the argument, and I think what is a basic, general, simple observation that what? The thing that has jacked you up the most is mom and dad. And the thing that's probably blessed you the most has been mom and dad. 
And despite some maybe very large traumatic circumstances that may have happened in your life, as rare exceptions, likely this. This is where the action is when we talk about looking below the surface. He's saying in order for us to be emotionally healthy, we must be willing to look at our family. To go back is the only way to go forward. And that God's able to redeem it, but he does not erase it. And this is the work for us to do. We have to identify and understand how we've been impacted and how it affects how we see God and others. My realization in talking to some folks about this has been realizing that they don't realize the way that your family actually shapes the way that you see God. So much of the way you see your family, if you're talking about God as father, God as mother, God as king, any sort of authority in your life, if you've got some broken relationships with authority, it's going to affect how you think about God. If we ignore or rationalize our past, we will be in danger of telling a disconnected and shallow version of the good news. And if we don't own up to it, we will end up mirroring, mirroring the very things. Right? How many of you have been like, I'll tell you one thing, it won't be like mom. Anyone ever said things like that? Let me get a show of hands. You ever thought things like that? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to speak like curse over you, but. It's a good sign that you're on your way to that happening unless you identify and allow God into those spaces. So once we see it and realize what's happened, which I'm going to go back to at the very end, how do we break the power of the past? It's not just identifying it, but that's the first thing. we got to see it. So first is, if you're taking notes, how do I break the power of the past? i got to see it. i got to see it. And for those of you who are like, look, I came from an incredible family. I always tell that story. And it's only in looking back a generation I realize, oh, there's still that old person creeping up inside mom and dad that is shaping so much of who I've become and who my brothers and sisters all became. Everybody has been shaped by their parents. Everybody. No matter how great your family is. So first you need to see it. Who are the people and what are the events that have shaped me? That help me understand the good and the bad. I have an anger problem. Why? Let's look into it. We've got to be willing to look and to see. This sometimes feels like the most basic and obvious point. But I'm telling you, so much of where the magic lies is right there. Do I see it? Asking God to seek me, search me, know my heart. Ask God to bring to mind a memory. A friend of mine did some listening prayer around this. We were talking. I said, he's just having a hard time. I don't know. I can't really talk to my mom and dad about this stuff and what happened, where there was divorces or X, Y, or Z, whatever it else is. Like, and just asking the question, like saying, God, I, I just want to listen. Can you bring to light a memory? First memory came up. Mom and dad screaming and fighting over him while he was in bed. Hadn't thought about it in decades. Okay, cool. Why is that in there? Right? Anyone have really random memories they don't know why they're in there? Yeah, I got memories of um, jumping over the wooden cracks. Like, we, we had these... Um, you know, like panel, like wooden panels on the floor of our house. And so I would jump from thing to thing. And I remember stepping on the crack as I was playing an internal game about if I stepped on the crack, then like poison would infect my whole body. And so I stepped on a crack and then I have a visual of like purple poison enveloping me and then lying flat on the floor. One of my most distinct memories is straight up made up and I have no idea why it's still in there. It may have just been an awesome, like, I don't know, cosplay moment or something. It was just like, but what's there? Being able to listen, 
being able to actually listen. This is where therapy comes in. Some of you came from a, a Christian background that kind of shunned therapy. Therapy is so good. It's so helpful to help you understand. And at the same time, therapy can be something that you are overly rely on. It becomes an unhealthy codependency. As followers of Jesus, we want to be aware of what's really going on. And so there is healthy therapy, of course, and unhealthy therapy. But for some of us, we actually need, I've recommended already like three or four times just over the course of this series, folks. Hey, you should see a counselor. You see somebody who can help you dig, help you search. Two, one, you see it. Two, how do I break the power of the past? You own it. You take responsibility. This is a big one. And by the way, this is not just unique to millennials. Don't blame anybody. This whole exercise is not about, yeah, so it's dad's fault. I'm all jacked up. And you walk away. That is not the point. Not the point of what we're doing. The point is not to blame shift. It's to ID the sin in your own life and be aware of the choices that you can make. Our urge, I think the urge of many is to get bitter and to blame shift. And I see that stunt so many people's spiritual growth. We get bitter and then we blame shift. The idea isn't to just get mad at daddy. It's to see the sin that lives in you. And unless we break the power of the past, you will do the same thing. It's repentance. It's bringing before God, God, this thing is there and I have some choices to make. I didn't cause that what dad did, but now it is on me to make some choices with what has come to light. When people say things like ignorance is bliss, this is right what they're talking about. If I don't have to think about it, if I don't know that it's there, that I'm somehow not responsible for it. But as the followers of Jesus, we get excited about confession, amen? We get excited about repentance because we know that's where the life is. Dying to the old and being aware and awake and surrendering to the things that have shaped us, that's where the life is. So how could we not get excited about it? Even when it's hard, even when it's brutal, it is where the life is. Three, how do I break the power of the past? You see it, you own it, and three, you take it to God in your community and allow them to reparent you. Write that word down, reparent you. The worst you can do to inset habitual sin is to hide it or deny it or to justify it. The worst thing you can do is to keep it a secret. It keeps you enslaved to wrong thinking. When it's brought into the light, you see things how they really are. And we need God in community then to reparent us. This is why language like born again into a new family is used. Whoever does my will is my brother and sister, Jesus says. The amount of adoption and family metaphors, I mean, they just, they are rampant. They are, the New Testament is soaked in them. Is the dominant metaphor for the church is the family. The responsibility is for us to be a family. The church needs to be a family. And by that, I do not mean like Andrew or Sarah or Corey, leaders. This is our collective job is to reparent one another. To have a different script about what family is supposed to mean. It's difficult and it's so hard in our individualistic age. It's so hard in a city like Providence, which is so transient. It's so hard when people are in and out and in and out and have a hard time community. community. It's just hard. But we've got to fight to create spaces and relationships where we are actually reparenting, re-understanding who we actually are. Our collective job is to retrench us, or sorry, reteach us 
how to live. That's why I don't read my notes. There's spelling errors like retrench. Our collective job is to reteach us how to live into the family of God. Your biological family does not make you powerless. I feel like some of you need to hear that. What happened doesn't make you powerless. It's hard. It hurts. I'm not pretending like I can even imagine or fathom it. Please don't hear me reducing it, but it does not make you powerless. Especially if you're here as a follower of Jesus, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, that same exact power apparently is alive in you. Test it out. See if that's real. I think it is. You can take all of your baggage and cut ties and walk into God's future for you. And to do this, we have to live into our new family, to live into who you are now. I have used this metaphor, this picture so many times, and I just can't think of a better one. I'm out of stories. I only have one life. I continue to be reminded of my friend who adopted the the, the young teenage kids. As soon as the gavel came down, they were smiths now. They were smiths. These two kids who had grown up in some of the worst circumstances are now smiths. They now have the rights and privileges of every other Smith biological kid. Daddy-daughter nights, going to happen. Food on the table every night. Safety in the home. A whole lot of I love yous. Learning about the way of Jesus. Safety, care, education. Everything that it meant to be a Smith. Like diametrically opposed to what they had come up in. And still, the 11, 12-year-old girl would hoard food. Would overeat or stuff food under her bed. Constantly, a year into being a smith. Why? She was food insecure for almost her entire life. She never knew where the next meal was coming from. So even though the judge said, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Mom and dad have said multiple times, you don't have to worry about where you get your food from any longer. Any longer. She still struggles. Body memories of I need to, I need to. Not believing what? who their parents say that she is now. This is why you almost never get past Jesus loves me, this I know. If I truly believe that I was loved by the God of the universe, if I truly believe I don't need to carry one more iota of shame, if I truly believe that death is not the final word, if I allowed that understanding of this new family I've been born into to reshape my systems, Oh, man, things begin to change. Things begin to shift. Even us in the most healthy of places, we feel like, allowing the good news of who Jesus is to shape those parts of us that we realize, those specific things we begin to realize that we were shaped by, to live into your new family. This can happen, by the way, at any age. There's someone in our community who's 60-plus years old, Watching her be a part of our community over the last four or five years has been fascinating. Because although there have been many steps backwards, this person has gone through great trial, great pain, things that most of us will never, I can say confidently, never have to experience. And she is learning at 60-something years old what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to trust that she's loved, even though she 
very rarely actually trusts that reality and allowing that to reshape then how she sees things and talks to people and thinks and the way her character is. I mean, I, I could go down the list. I'm never too old to start being reparented. So let's go back to scripture for one last moment as we close. We can feel crippled, enslaved to our own pain and to the lie that we are stuck and not believe that Jesus makes us whole. Remember the end or where we stopped telling the story about Abram's family, Abraham at this point. We have up with Joseph. Joseph's brothers, remember, sold him into slavery. He's wrongly accused of rape. He's imprisoned. He's been discarded by his family, and yet God has something specific to say about his life. After all of his hardship and loss, Joseph eventually ends up as second in command in Egypt, and he has the power to save his family. For those of you who know, you know Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that's the story we're in. There's probably more reference points for that than there is the Bible. <laughs> Got it, Technicolor Dreamcoat part. Family comes, has this opportunity to save his family from death. And in verse 20, we read this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He is saying this to the very family that ruined his life. In our life, I think we view our pain through a very narrow lens. I at least have had the habit of doing this. This text calls us to look at our pain through God's lens. How does he see and what does he have to say about it? How does he see our pain and what does he have to say about it? How do you see your pain? Do you understand how God sees it? How do you see your pain and what does God actually have to say to that? To be honest before God about your doubts, about your struggles. To be like, just, just for real for a minute. I know there's one person in this room who's, who's been dealing with like, I just can't call God Father. I just will not do it. I just will not do it. I will not do it. God, I, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Why can't you do it? To be able to name it and see it. And what does God say to that? What does God want to speak into those disconnects that you have? Maybe for many of us, right, as we talked about in our first week, we're a slave to sort of westernized, victory-laden Christianity, which says ignore it, ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. Just, just, just pray, it'll go away. Just, yep, of course I'm a sinner, repent, okay, prayer time. And the idea of actually doing the hard work of going, where have I been shaped? Breaking the power of the past and naming those things and allowing the spiritual practices of God and the work of the family to reparent you. Maybe today, this is an invitation to step in and do the hard work. God can make something beautiful out of the mess of your family. That's all I want to say. What looks like harm and pain, God can turn and make something good out of. If you don't believe that this morning, I want to encourage you to try. Because it has to start there. It actually has to start there. It can't begin without trusting, without having some hope. Even if it's just a shred of it, have some hope that we could trust God with our past. We could trust God with our past. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we recognize the pain and hurt and disconnect in our lives. We recognize, Lord, that we need you. And so I pray a blessing of hope over many of us now. I pray, Lord, a blessing of just that of hope that was, was intended for harm, that that broken, messed up family that you are all too well aware of. You're like, I don't need to do any deep dive into this and ask mom and dad what they were like. Like, I know, I lived it. God, I pray for hope and for the trust that you're a good dad. The trust, Lord, that there is that who we are now is different. That's why we're invited to be literally born again into a new way of seeing the world and seeing ourselves because of who you are, that we have been lied to and shaped by things that have pushed us away from who God intended us to be. And so we name those things today. Lord, I pray for a spirit of just honesty, of transparency, of light. I just have this image of like just light being shined into every dark corner and crevice. Like there's no shadow being able to just see these things for what they are and have hope that not only will God restore them, but to have hope that we can take the first step into that restoration process. Our biology does not make us powerless.